You asked a question earlier about why somebody would want to live all by themselves in a cabin. Or a, on a sailboat. Or in a boat, yep. Or deep in the woods with their family. Or in the desert. So some days I wake up and my calendar is empty. And after the initial morning pouncing that you guys give me and our oatmeal and our hygiene moment, you guys sometimes go back upstairs to play with Legos or read. And I just want to curl up with the paper or maybe take a walk around the neighborhood by myself. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have do you ever have moments like that? Yeah, sometimes I just need a break from my sister. She's kind of annoying me and I've been with her my whole entire life. I just need a little break. Yeah. How much of a break? Maybe like a few minutes. Well, that's not very long. I know. Have you ever taken a longer break? Yeah, a while ago we did one-on-one night. Nika and Mom would go out for mac and cheese, and we would go out for sushi. You and I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were nice. You ever think about when you grow up, if you're going to have a life that's surrounded by people, or if you're going to have a life that's a little more outside of that, or maybe off the grid, or by yourself? I don't know. Probably with people. Me too. I like people. But sometimes I need some time alone. So we're going to talk to people who have found ways or been forced into situations where they have solitude and time alone. See what that's all about. You're listening to Rome School. My girls ask the questions and we explore the real world talking to real people in person for the answers. This is a show for grown-ups, though, especially this episode. The Lone Wolf. Most of us know someone who we call a lone wolf. (laughs) We have this image of a wolf standing alone on a mountaintop, howling. But we also know what about wolves? That wolves live in packs. Yeah, always? Mm, Sometimes. Yeah, how does that help them? If If they want to have a big meal for all of them, They can catch a big animal. Yeah, probably helps them in a lot of ways. But this show is not a show about nature or animal behavior. It's about solitude and being alone and and leaving society or being asked to leave society. We move in and out of our our wolf pack in in so many ways. Our civilized society is so complicated, it would be impossible to sum it up in a single episode. But we can take a look at a sprinkling of the people who have left the pack. People who, for whatever reason, or for whatever length of time, um, find themselves alone, or in an offshoot, or in an off-grid situation. I'm Buddy Crop. I've grown up on the north coast. Uh, I've lived here my whole life. I live on a sailboat, a 26-foot sailboat, at the West Mooring Basin here in Astoria, and I rarely go out in the river in it. It's my home. Most men that come here are trying to get away, and they find they still can't run away from themselves, so they run right up to Alaska or over to Hawaii. If you are an alcoholic or a drug addict or a perpetual pothead, you are one of the normal people here, and there's very few communities you can do that in. Because everybody's running from something, they're all a bunch of losers. So it's been this way here for 200 years. But the most people here are needy and lonely. Yeah, I just came down. I just got off my boat because I was having cabin fever. What's cabin fever? Cabin fever is when you're feeling kind of alone and constrained by your environment. What's the cure? I think just to go out and talk to people, maybe temporarily rejoin the pack. I was walking in the dunes in in Cannon Beach over on the north side started talking to this old guy and he says see those see those girls down there that's my wife and that's my daughter and he goes and see that house that's that's the house and, and he goes they that's all for them I don't I, it doesn't even make me happy I don't know what makes me happy all I want to do is go downtown to that tavern that Bill's tavern and have a beer with with somebody from around here and that was kind of it so we're in a bookstore in the middle of winter during a rainstorm and we're lucky enough to have found these two people just drinking coffee at the bar in the bookstore. There's a bar in the bookstore? Yeah, that's how we do it in Oregon. So just then, a woman literally blows in off the street 
God, I was it. just thinking about you. Where? Are you still alive? I've seen you for a while. Where have you been? She's soaking wet, and she starts peeling off layers. Her hair falls down, and these people are genuinely surprised and thrilled to see her. Oh, that was geez. over like, oh my God, almost 20 years ago. But she's a celebrated <laughs> fisherwoman. Um, I don't fish anymore. I just had a baby boy. I was raised in this town, and this town was actually, a lot of child molesters and rapists were sent to this town. And so I was brought up that way, thinking it was normal. Um, and I've had nothing but people hurt me all my life. And I finally said, up yours, I'm done. And I started working with dogs or killing fish. Um, dogs love you in a minute, and fish just want to be eaten, so. <laughs> You look so good. Hey, I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm, I've been working with the dogs for like three months now. I'm perfect for the job, so. I've been commercial fishing for the last 17 years, all the way up to Alaska and down to California. For, like I said, 17 years. Um, I also have a 16-year-old daughter, and she lives here. To what my life in a nutshell, I came back to get sober. I didn't raise my daughter, so um, I got pregnant, I came home. Got sober, got a job, and here I am. I hate, I hate telling my story because it's it's so dark, and I look at it as a, as a beautiful thing. Okay, the way I look at life, you know, take take life at what life gives you, not what it takes from you. Being raped, I made somebody happy. I tried to get my son up for adoption. The adoption fell through, so I stood up and did the thing that I could. I didn't think I could do, and that was being a parent. And I'm still struggling with it. I mean, he's a beautiful boy, absolutely gorgeous. Most people don't. I don't trust. It takes a lot for me to keep coming by and seeing him. And it's not very often. Linda allowed us to come visit her and talk some more at her day job at the kennel in Hammond, Oregon. Hammond is a quiet little town that's not on any main highway. It's tucked in just east of where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Most tourists, even Oregonians, don't know about Hammond. We are on the main street and there is a herd of wild elk resting in the wet grass of the yard of a house just across the street from the kennel. And I feel like this is one of those times when we got to talk to someone who truly values their solitude and their time away from the pack, or carefully circling just a few members of the pack. And she has a very specific set of personal goals. Fishing is something that I, I did to get away from people. I didn't care for people at all. And when I was around people, I tried to put on that face of, I'm okay, and I didn't trust people. No, working out on the boats, you have four people at maximum you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. You get used to certain people. And then when you work in land, you deal with you know, people coming in and out. How can I help you? I'm not that good at that. My boss actually wanted me to be a groomer because I, I work with dogs quite a bit. And I looked at her and went, I'll bait dogs, don't put me with people. I don't deal with people well. They're not open-minded, they're judgmental, and they're rude. You know, they'll get into your business. Well, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do this. Well, dude, I'm doing the best I can. And when you're out in the boat, you don't have people telling you that. They give you their opinion, and they leave it alone. I was 17. Um, I couldn't find a job here. And I just turn around and wind up going to on the docks and beating the docks, asking everybody if they needed a job. And finally, a guy turns around and says, you think you're cocky enough? Show me what you're worth. And I undid a net, and I started fishing. And the first time I went out, I was out there for two weeks on the salmon boats. Two weeks with no bathroom, actually. Uh, we had a bucket. Talk about grunge. It was grungy, and that's, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it at all. I mean, it, was, it got me away from people. I was making tons of money. Um, and that's what I got addicted to, was away from the people and the money. Linda told us about all the different catches she's participated in and how she went from her first season of making $20,000 to making a quarter of a million dollars in her last calamari season. Pretty amazing, but is it worth it? Brutal is a good way to put it, uh, especially for a female. I actually had a guy that wouldn't leave me alone, and he was being brutal about it. One night, he was all drunk on the boat and while we were in port, and he tried to force me, and I took my gun from underneath my pillow and I said, get out. And he backed up and, you know, by then he realized I was serious. Don't, don't mess with me. So I was always known as the 44 caliber Linda. That's, that's a big gun. I mean, a little girl with a big gun. I'm in a man's industry, you know. 
not something I'm going to do on a regular basis anymore. I started training animals when I was 16 with my grandfather. And I, on the off-season, not fishing, I was training dogs. Dogs love you in the moment. They don't judge you. They don't get mad at you. And if they do, it's, it's temporary. I've noticed that when people conversate with their family on the boat, they get stressed out because of home life's going on, things happening at home, and they can't do anything about it. I had nowhere to go. My family wouldn't really talk to me. Um, so I think that was the most I felt the most loneliness is because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where my life was going. You know, and it just it's time to get off the boat. It's time to, you know, make sure my body's okay to raise this kid. He's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Nobody's totally independent. Um, I just don't like to rely on people because when you rely on them, they can hurt you. So you, you have to find a good network. You have to find people that work with you. You know, you work with them and they'll work with you kind of thing. You're listening to Rome Schooled. Our episode, The Lone Wolf. I like to be alone, just not not for a week. Like an hour is okay, and then a day I I kind of want to play with my sister, and then a week I get really sister sick. Sister sick. What do you call it when you're sick of your sister? <laughs> Annoying sick. Annoying sick. Because she annoys me sometimes. I like to be by myself. <laughs> you know, I've hunted and fished all my life, and I've always hunted and fished alone. I'm like my father. He was that way, too. He and I would hunt and fish together, but my father and I could work together whole day and never speak a word to each other. We just knew what we were doing. In those days, when you milk cows, you also raised pigs. So when it came time for me to be born, Dad loaded up pigs, he loaded Mother up, and sent her in too. <laughs> I came home on a steamboat and landed in Skamakaway. Wow. My name is Moores, Maury Moores. I live in Skamakaway. I've been here 82 years. Skamakaway, Washington is an unincorporated area of southwestern Washington. It's tucked away in a river valley. It looks like its Chinook name, which means smoke or fog on the water. Now, the census says it's about 300 people, but really it's a fishing village of 70 or so, and then sprawling farms for miles. Moores is the oldest person in the area who's been there his whole life. What made me stay? It's my job. <laughs> I have land. I have a job. I like the farm. I like running the farm. And the government at one time uh, was trying to settle people out here, bring them from the city, Put them on the farm, they're going to be happy and make a living. Well, that didn't work too well. You just have to know what you're doing. I really don't have any desire to, to travel. Just to be left alone enough so I can make a living without people. When we get them, they bring trouble. We get People who come here from, well, I've got one living now up on the top of the hill. Come from San Diego, he just retired, well, a year ago. And uh, a nice guy. But their ideas and my ideas on what we want here are entirely different. And these people come in and they buy a lot. And we got to shut down the duck hunting on Puget Island because it might disturb them a little bit. <laughs> so the outsiders don't help me a bit. They don't help the county either because they will not vote for something. If we needed a new school, you know instantly, you can count them up and you know what the no votes are. You're listening to the Lone Wolf episode of Rome Schooled. There's always a dilemma in which people have left their original community, but now they're in a new place with a new pack, 
and there's a new community, and they have to decide whether they're going to feed that pack. Even though they're only six, my two twin daughters have pretty different views and different ways of navigating through the world. So I asked one of them, the one who tends to go towards the center of the pack, about maybe taking some time off and how that might feel. No, because I love Miss Heather. And I love all the students in my class. All of them? Uh, yeah, mostly. Who do you think is your, your pack? Tell me about that. You, Mom, Dana, Dooley, my class, Miss Cachado. There's starting to be a lot of people. What about the city of Portland? Yeah. So where does your pack end? It ends at a city. A city, huh, okay. It seems a little arbitrary to have it end at the city, but let's start there. Let's, let's talk to some people who've gotten away from the city, okay? What does arbitrary mean? Well, it means you've drawn a line out of your own personal choice, not by some sort of rules or anything like that. You've defined your pack based on sort of a gut feeling, right? Yeah. Your family and your school and your friends and everybody in the city of Portland, but not the state of Oregon. Yeah, not. So let's talk to some people who decided to leave that version of the pack, who moved from the city off to an island or out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of the country, okay? Okay. Who should we talk to? I have no idea. How am I supposed to know? I've never lived off the grid. I tell my daughters that unlike Linda the fisherman and Moore the farmer, not everybody's born into a life where they can understand solitude or brought there by steamboat the way Maury was. Some people work really hard to get to that place. And I happen to know one person who spent about a dozen years getting ready for and then living completely off the grid halfway around the world on a tiny island in Fiji. And I asked the girls if they wanted to meet her. Cool. You want to meet her? Yeah. It's a her. It's a her. She lived off the grid completely for seven years. It all started with me never feeling like I was part of this culture and feeling like I wanted more community and less consumerism. I'm an occupational therapist and I work with severely abused children who are emotionally disturbed. I mean, it's part of the reason I left is just seeing what we're doing to our children. I wanted to leave before I totally burnt out. Linda set her sights on an island that's so remote that it takes two days to get there from any western airport. Uh, you start looking at what you consume because there, there's no garbage service, there's no any kind of service, no stores on the island, nothing. So I had to grow my own food, keep my solar running, keep the water systems working and all that. So when, what does off the grid mean to you? It means creating your own energy resources. Not necessarily checking out of society, but checking out of the big corporate energy process. To, to have the, the whole cycle be very small, have a very small footprint. Did you think about taking anybody with you? Yeah, I. <laughs> during the 10 years I was looking, I was also trying to find a partner who had the same goals. and. I thought when I got divorced that I'd find somebody that had the same kind of goals and interests, but it just never happened. And so with that, Linda left her pack and she started exploring other ways of forming a community. Maybe it would be with a village, maybe a new partner, maybe something called a Matangali. The island I was living on had 14 villages and they had, um, and then within village there's family groups and called Matangalis, and then all the Matangali chiefs decide what happens with their land. She knew that wherever she was looking, it wasn't gonna be an easy road. She got ready. Those last six months as I was packing up, getting a shipping container, getting rid of things, you know, I was pretty darn anxious about the whole thing. But then she left, she got there. And everything in her life when she arrived in Fiji was Suddenly, let's see, how do I want to put this? It was so hot and mosquito-y, and there's, you know, I'm living in a tent, and I would just get overwhelmed and just sit down on a rock and start crying, and then I'd look up and see this incredible view of the ocean 
and these incredibly wonderful Fijian guys who are just, you know, lifting up telephone poles with bare feet and laughing and singing behind me. And it's like, look at these guys. They have nothing. You go to their homes and they're living in little huts and, you know, don't really own anything, but they're happy and... But they had their families and you... Yes, they did. You yeah. didn't have your family. I didn't. I didn't. During the building process, I'd have real highs and real lows, and there was a point where there was no turning back. I'd invested every dime I had, and it was all systems go. It's not like you can, you know, back out of something like that, so I just had to go forward. And there was lots of times where it was really difficult. It's an eight-hour ferry ride to my island. I was by myself. Um, I mean, there was times where I didn't talk to another soul for a month. I went for probably four to five months without talking to another Westerner. That's what got me, was not having um, those kind of conversations, so. About what? Um, well, I'm a scientist. Um, I like politics. I like discussing politics and science, the meaning of life. Um, Without mental stimulation, your brain just starts going to sleep and you really need to have, you know, something that's feeding your brain or your soul. Have you ever done any of the ashram uh, retreats where, where the idea is to stop the busy brain? I mean, I Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist and have done a lot of retreats where I did that. But this took it too far. Uh, I think it's a really huge lesson to learn about who you are and how to be alone. To come into the world alone, you go out of the world alone, and to be able to just be with yourself and, and become at peace with that is a lesson. That's why some people go into that mon monastic life, is to find that center within themselves. It seems to me that Linda did find that center. And then she very much occupied her brain. She became increasingly um, involved in her new pack of islanders. And she actually ended up going from island to island with almost missionary zeal. She taught public health education and checked in on clinics on the other islands. She taught a yoga class. And she did her own art when she was by herself. She even wrote and illustrated a book. And so she recreated a community of sorts in the most remote place on Earth. But then she left. She returned stateside. A lot of things happened. I missed my grandkids. My best friend was dying, and I had to come back and um, care for her for the, to the end of her life. And it's a lot of work living off-grid. I mean, I was in my 60s, and I knew I could, I could do it now, but there's no way I could do it in my 70s. It was just too hard, um, physically hard. Linda was done. She had learned how to be alone by being surrounded by and becoming integral to a new community with a different pack. So what to do now? What I struggle with is how busy people are and how they don't have time for friends, community. And, and in Fiji, it's so not like that. So what, if, what are most people busy themselves with? At the risk of having you sound like my life coach, what? <laughs> Not knowing me that well, but what am I likely to be busying myself with that I might be able to free up time to, to embrace the here and now with my village? I think people work too much here. That was not their, money was not a priority. I don't have much, I don't care, I can go out to the sea and get dinner, I can go to my garden and eat. The men go up to the gardens um, before it gets hot, they go before light, and the gardens are all up in the top of the mountains and they garden in their home to take their kids to school in the morning and then they sit around and play pool or drink kava, do things around the house. My creative juices aren't all blocked by busyness and I can do a lot of creative things because my brain isn't filled with lists of things to do and I don't know anybody that has the kind of time that I have. You know, I work three days a week, I'm not working more, and I'm looking forward to in three years, I'm not gonna work at all. So, what if instead of going halfway around the world and negotiating with a village king, we could just go to Southern California and find a rent-free spot? 
Well, that's what people seek in Slab City. We drove down there just going to check out the Salton Sea, and we stumbled upon this place. South of the Salton Sea, near the border of Mexico, we found this sprawling area of off-grid squatting and makeshift community. Reportedly, it's one of the biggest areas like this in the entire United States. It's known for outlaws and outlandish and some really outstanding art and some very outside-the-box life-making. We found ourselves there at the end of taping our last episode, and we found an encampment called East Jesus, no relation to the deity, culture, star, or savior. But we're walking around this spectacular open-air sculpture garden in which everything is art. We're standing under this 60-foot-tall tower creation next to this giant bank of televisions. You really need to go to our website to check out pictures of some of this stuff. I usually just go by first names out here. Uh, my name's Eric. I'm one of the uh, residents and staff here at East Jesus. And so my main purpose here is just to keep the thing going. You know, I've been learning a lot about electricity and solar power and composting and how to live off the land and live off grid. And basically, I contribute as much time I can to just keep the place from blowing away. Because deserts have a habit of uh, taking big things and turning them into small things. For example, they take mountains and they turn it into sand. Pretty much every day out here, just trying to stay ahead of the desert. This is East Jesus, one of the camps here in Slab City. So we, uh, basically the idea here is we take the trash and we either turn it into art or we burn it. Slab City is the, the greater area out here. It's been, people have been squatting here at Warmer since the 50s, when they, after they shut down the old Marine base. What's that I'm hearing? That there is, right over here is the Chocolate Mountains. That is a live, active naval gunnery range. In fact, uh, yesterday you could hear combined arm exercises all day long. You hear the thump, 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 and then the buzzing of the, uh, the FA-18s doing close air support. So he already explained the sound of the jets flying overhead, but it, if you're wondering about the bicycle sound, it's hundreds of disassembled bicycles that are part of a giant art exhibit here. We're surrounded by bicycles. We do have a couple of containers. One has a big battery bank of repurposed telecom batteries. Most every surface we can get a solar panel on top of we have. We actually have plenty of electricity most of the time, as long as we can keep the jury rig stuff going. That's a cat. That's baby Jesus. That's the one that usually hides from everybody. Really? Oh. We have three cats out here. They're very useful to keep away the mice, which then keeps away the snakes. I mean, every once in a while we'll get the the giant hairy scorpions crawling through camp because, I mean, they don't care. They just walk from here to there and our place is in the way. They're coming through. Rather large, bright yellow, and at night they glow so nice under a black light. Really? And wow. the big giant scorpions out here, it's about like getting a bad bee sting. It, you probably don't want to get stung, but it ain't going to kill you. A couple of my friends are have been living here for a couple years, and I recently retired and got plenty of time on my hands. And I figure as a retired mortician, go volunteer at a museum. I just, a slightly unconventional museum. And we do have several artists that will come out and spend a weekend, a week, a month. And there's a good grid basically from this tire wall to what used to be the actual gridded roads. And there's quite a few of the old original slabs left at Slab City. And those tend to be nicer, more permanent camps because some of them have a nice chunk of concrete to build on top of. And the old ammunition bunkers. And those are considered like premium spots because you've got this nice indoor bunker and you'll see somebody's RV parked in front of it. And those usually get handed off from generation to generation of people living out here. You know, it's like if I was living there, I already got my buddies moving in and then I leave. Slab City is kind of a mind-blowing place to visit. There's incredible art and the inventiveness that people have employed to make a life for themselves in the middle of the desert, off-grid, is striking. But if you walk about 20 yards from the camp that we're standing in, you get the distinct impression that you are at the dump. Most of the people in the slabs are out here because they want to be left alone. I mean, there's, you know, you'll find crazy tweakers and just people that are insane and can't cope and you can usually tell their camps are very rudimentary and basically like homeless people in the desert. And then you'll see other camps that are, I think we're probably the largest camp, but there are others that are as well equipped, just not as large. And sometimes they use scary names just to keep people away. 
a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then when you get in there, you meet them. They're actually just regular folks, and they've got a nice camp, and they're just figured out a way to live off Social Security. You know, is I said, going out the other way. There's the library. You know, it's a true anarchist library, open 24/7. I've been wanting to do a road taxidermy since I'm traveling a lot, especially from almost Mexico to almost Canada. You're listening to Rome School. We're spending some time away from the pack. We're actually off the grid, exploring ideas of solitude in this episode called Lone Wolf. No, personal hygiene is, um, yeah, in the winter. I don't know, I'd go five to nine days between showers. But you smell like smoke most of the time, so it's yeah, okay. exactly. It's medieval. My friends Rob and Jill live on an island. I can't tell you the name of the island, actually, which is why I bleeped it, um, because people there really cherish their privacy. Because not only is it remote and beautiful and off the grid, but a few years back, a national news outlet did this feature piece about the island and its people and one specific conflict that happened there after a federal drug agent raided and arrested some of the inhabitants of the island. This ended up affecting all of the inhabitants of the island in one way or another. So they like to keep their privacy. I'll go back to when I first went to the island. My oldest friend moved up there. So I used to go up and have these idyllic visits. I would help move firewood or, you know, do things. But it was a holiday. But then his girlfriend at the time died in a helicopter accident. Um, And I went up there and we drank vodka every day and whiskey, and I laid at the foot of his bed on a little makeshift bed like a faithful dog, and we just drank for like two straight months and, uh, you know, got through some stuff. And so I continued to go up there, and on a nice hot sunny day, there was just always this amazing flock of dragonflies. It was just an enchanting pond with this nice float, and, and I really thought, wow, it would be really amazing if someday... I could live here, and then that happened. Rob met a girl, fell in love, and invited her to come out to the island. It was kind of like, I want to take you to this place. I've always wanted to live there. It's a little challenging and different. Didn't really talk all that much about it, and I just fell in love with it immediately. And I will love it again, but she loves it more than I do. At this point. (laughs) At this point. I think I'm working up to loving it again. You have to cook all your own food. You know, and there's no grocery stores to go to or anything like that. You know, so it kind of eliminates a lot of errands, so to speak. You know, you're not going to the bank, you're not going to the grocery store, you don't have to do your, you know, laundromat or whatever. It's usually a nasty cold boat ride to get anywhere. A little diesel, and it would take, you know, a couple, three hours to get just about anywhere. There's more social activity there than there is in Portland for us. There's endless potlucks and endless people getting together and playing music, lots of fires outside. There's a lot of overlap. What do you mean overlap? So you're having potlucks and dinner and it's Friday night, but you know a bunch of community members show up and no one can help but say, so, school site council business, you know, the business and pleasure got a little mixed up. So the pressures of keeping peace and harmony in a smaller community are pretty great. There really isn't any escape, especially on an island. What's weird is, although you're going there to get away from people, you end up having to face them and maybe make more compromises than you might in the anonymity of a larger society. Robin Jill's son, Hank, sums it up the best. Everyone was pretty nice. Like We fought, but like it's hard not to be friends with everybody because there's not very many people. And like if you're not friends with somebody, it's kind of hard because there's like nobody there. But there's always this sense of like, you gotta get it together. Everybody there has a responsibility because everything affects everybody. If one person doesn't really have it together, it just causes a whole domino effect. When things break. When things break, it's money. a very different scenario. And there are a few people that trade or work in different fields like plumbing and electrical and whatnot, but there isn't a plumber there right now. No. There was a plumber for a long time. Uh, okay. Well, kind of a plumber. Reluctant. I think he was gung-ho at one point, <laughs> then he became very reluctant because fixing those systems, it's not like you can go to the hardware store easily. That's, you know, logistics are very, still a little confounding. You have to have a lot of patience. One thing that's missing is uh, 
governmental oversight. No police. They never come out unless they're asked out. They get nervous about Island because it's got this reputation for being populated by malcontents and people that will confront you if you're walking down the road. Someone that came up on a boat carved the Churlish Island on the aluminum rail going up the ramp. That's how a lot of people see it because there are a lot of people that wouldn't play right in general society. They wouldn't know how. They'd be lost. And they don't want to. And they don't want to. Most everything's controversial. Like you can't walk backwards down the street without a lot of comments. <laughs> People are going to talk about it. We're all in school together. We're half of us having dinner together that night. We're all on the same committees. And kids can roam free. It's pretty tight knit. You're listening to Rome School's Lone Wolf episode. We're talking about the importance and the ramifications of wanting to be alone. I'm an only child. Never really liked being alone, though. Of my two daughters, one values her solitude quite a bit, but to the other, this does not come naturally. I don't like being alone because there really isn't very much to do when you're alone. There's, like, no one to play with and no one to do coloring stuff with you. But one time you were left on your own and I came out and you had made a suspension bridge out of a whole package of Q-tips and a hot glue gun, which is incredible. And that's because you were just left to your own devices and you were on your own. Well, when you have something to do, like mostly with me, it's arts and crafts with hot glue gun. It doesn't make me feel lonely because I've got something in my hands. Do you think it's sometimes easier to think things through when you have some time by yourself? Yeah. I think that's why time outs, and I know why they call them time outs, because outs is a word from away f from each other, like out of the game, and you have to spend some time. Alone? Yeah. And what does that do for you? It makes you think a bit more thoughtfuller. Yeah, much more thoughtfuller. I agree with you. Okay, so some people have chosen a life off-grid. Others say, I just work here. And they thrust themselves into long periods of solitude by their professions. Take a baker, for example. A baker is one of those classic, middle-of-the-night, solitary animals who commits himself to his art and his craft so that we can devour it in the morning. My name is Joel Eisenhower. I'm one of the owners of the Eisenhower Bagel House, and I do all the baking early in the morning. Uh, just about nobody else on, on the planet works at that, that time of day. I get to see, you know, what goes on at, at 3.30 in the morning. There's a surprising amount of activity. You know, the motel across the street, there's some shady business that's always going on at, at all hours. But yeah, I mean, it's a little bit isolating. You know, our shop is all windows too, so I'm looking out the, the whole morning as I'm, as I'm boiling and baking the bagels. Um, and you kind of feel like you're in a fishbowl. The world is all happening out there, and sometimes it's crazy, you know. And, but uh, on the inside, it's, it's pretty serene. You have a routine. I definitely don't have the social life that I had, you know, when I was 22. Always had a big friend group, and yeah, you really got to pare that down. Um, but it's the, the sacrifices you make as a as a business owner. I mean, there's always trade-offs, and I guess this is just just one of them. One of my employees said, "Yeah, you know, it's a kind of somebody." coming into your fortress of solitude, you know, and, and it does feel like that a little bit, that this is, has sort of become my sacred space, so it's just the music and it's almost meditative. Sometimes it feels like you're in a, you're in a dream, almost. Sometimes it feels like you're in a nightmare. <laughs> uh, I've had those mornings. At some point, I've, you have that realization that just, how did I get here, you know? Three years ago, I, I never would have guessed that I'd be up in the middle of the night making bagels, you know. A couple months back, I said, well, you know, I'm not really an artisan baker. And my partner, Michelle, corrected me and she said, yes, you are. <laughs> you know, you weren't, but, but you are now. And, 
Yeah, no, I do feel like that. Uh, for for better or worse, I mean, you you know, writers write, and I guess bakers bake. True enough that bakers bake and painters paint. Podcasters podcasts and go into their favorite bagel shops with their daughters when they're not driving Winnebago's. Matt Sheehy, on the other hand, walks around in the forest all day by himself for days on end. He's a cruiser. So I'm a cruiser, um, and cruising is um, basically, it's like, let's say you wanted to know what was in this forest for whatever reason. Let's say you wanted to make a plan for it, let's say you owned it. What cruising means, it's, it's a way of going in here and measuring what's here without measuring every single tree. It's like you use statistics and you measure just a sample and you do it in a really scientific way. So I will... Oh, look at this big newt right here. Salamander. Oh, Dana! What do you see over here in this area? A lizard! Oh, close. <laughs> wow, what kind of lizards like to be in this environment? A newt? <laughs> you guys can pick it up if you're gentle and you put it, put it right back down where you found it. Don't pick it up by the tail, though. Why? Because the tail will come off. I know. One sneaker did that with a lizard. Yeah, so like 95% of the time, I'm in the field. I drive out to the middle of nowhere, um, and I have a bunch of maps, and I have a GPS unit, and I have aerial photos. I make a plan for where I'm going to walk, and then I just spend all day walking point to point. And and at each point, I collect a little bit of information, and it usually takes me about a half an hour each point. Salamander's probably gone by now. That salamander's smart. It's long gone. I have like this vest, and inside the vest, I have a laser rangefinder that tells me how far away I am from something. Uh, that way I can triangulate height for a tree, and it has a clinometer in it, you know, so I can measure the angle. And then I have this very profession-specific instrument called a reliscope. Basically, it just tells me which trees I need to sample. And then I have a, a increment bore. You drill into a tree, and then you can pull out a core sample and tell you how old the tree is, and I can tell you the history of the tree. I have my lunch, and I listen to podcasts and music sometimes. But I try to limit it to just a couple of hours because I'm a songwriter also. If I don't allow my mind to be occupied all the time, if I, if I allow my mind to get bored, essentially, because I'm just out here doing a repetitive thing all day, way more ideas will come to me. Like, they just sort of pop out of nowhere. Because it's like my, I'm being occupied by this thing that I'm doing, but it's, it's not using that other part of the mind. So if you allow your mind to be occupied by something repetitive and super logical, like, all that stuff in the background, will suddenly want to jump out. I don't know, that, that's what I think is going on, but I don't, I don't really know. So I'm like a one-man experiment. I've started to really appreciate the solitariness of the job. Um, and in fact, when I go and do my other job, which is touring as a musician, there are days that I, I just feel like I'm losing my mind. It's like so social and it's so dependent on other people. And in, in you're in the business of trying to get a bunch of people into one room at one time. Um, now that I have both those things happening, where I have this one life where I'm just alone all the time, and then I have this job where I'm never alone, um, it, it feels like I need both of them now. You know, like it, when, I, when I'm only doing one, when I do one for a long period of time, I really start to miss the other, and then and vice versa. On Monday of this week, I was in New York playing on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, um, but it was like, New York City! high-pressure television. So it was the complete opposite of what we're doing right now. Right now we're standing in the forest and it's raining a little bit and your kids are looking at salamanders. It's, it's a really different kind of loneliness. When you spend like six hours alone, a couple of days in a row, without entertainment, you really start to have a lot of things just come out of nowhere, you know, like, like thing, there are things back there in the back of your mind that are always there that you can, you can keep, like, away for, for a while, but if you get rid of all the distractions, they, they'll come out. And at the end of, like, that six-hour period or something, all of a sudden you'll have, like, a big burst of emotion. For example, uh, my mother passed away, like, like, it's been about four years ago now, and, and I'll think it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I, I don't, that, it's not as painful anymore or whatever, but um, I don't really know how to talk about that. The feelings of grief will just like pop up out of nowhere, which I, I think will happen in 
regular life also, but it'll more likely happen in a way where all of a sudden you'll just feel really irritable or something. You'll end up getting in an argument with somebody or something like that, you know, and you'll realize afterwards, like, oh, actually, there was this other thing that was bugging me. So, again, I grew up as an only child. But not long after that, my family started traveling, and I was in packs of one kind or another. And in my young professional life, I was always traveling in a van with a bunch of guys as a musician. Not guys that were my family or even my pack, but a bunch of guys. Nothing against any of them, but they weren't my people. And when I was out there on the road, I felt as alone as I had ever felt. It kind of made me wonder, what would it be like to be in prison? I asked the girls if they wanted to come explore that question with me. Do you want to go? No. Why not? Uh, like, I, I don't want to go there, but I, 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 I want to see what it's like inside. What do you think it's like inside? A bunch of, like, rooms with bars, but I've never really been in, in a real jail, so I'm not really sure. You probably haven't either. I haven't, no, but I talked to my friend who spent three years in jail. For what? Well, it's kind of complicated. He... It's complicated. <laughs> he lied to some people, but he didn't know that he was lying. He sort of convinced himself he was really doing a good thing, a really good thing. But he, he got confused. And I have to leave it at that because I'm not allowed to talk about his case because still, he's still under house arrest. What about when he's um, not in house arrest anymore? Well, then I think maybe he'll make up his mind about what parts of the story he wants to tell. But he did sit down and talk with me about what it was like to be in jail because I wanted to talk. Then why aren't you telling me? What were some things he said? Well, he said that um, you don't really become friends with people in jail. You just kind of, you feel very alone. In the movies, sometimes people become friends and they meet up on the outside after they get out. It's not really how it goes. Wouldn't that be weird? Because they still might do some bad stuff. They're just not your, they're not your family. What if you woke up and it wasn't Nika next to you in bed? It was just some stranger who was in jail with you. That would be weird. It would be weird. You find a real strange sense of community. And I think it's because everybody understands that everybody else is miserable and there's not like one guy who's like, this kind of kicks ass, I love being in prison. You know, like everybody is miserable. Everybody can only talk to their family for 15 minutes at a time and then the phone hangs up. It's, you don't, I don't like anybody that I was in prison with. I mean, there are a couple guys who I, who I think are genuinely good guys, but I had a lot of people who I leaned on and I had a lot of people who leaned on me and then when it's over, it's over. You don't, you know, like, hey, let's, we're gonna meet up in two years or whatever, or maybe some people do, but for me, when I walked out, it was like, that's the end of those relationships. No Shawshank Redemption. No Shawshank, yeah, <laughs> I'm not meeting Red at the place <laughs> to dig up treasure, right. none of that. The higher security, the medium security, you're in a cell. More often than not, you have a cellmate. I had a cell to myself a couple of times, and that was actually pretty liberating because you can hear noise around you, but like you just have that autonomy that you don't get. But when you move down to the to the minimums, to the camps, at least in my experience, you're in a dorm setting. So it's 42 guys, all in little four-man cubicles. So they come through and they count at 10 o'clock, 10.30, everybody's lights are out. But then you have that moment where you know everybody's still awake and just laying or sitting in bed and thinking about where they are. And you know nobody is thinking about, like, are they going to make an Indiana Jones prequel? Everybody is just thinking, like, fuck, it is 11.30. I'm in prison. I have no idea where anybody I love is, and I can't get a hold of them. And if there's an emergency, the chaplain will call me tomorrow and tell me that something terrible happened. And that's, that's probably the loneliest that you really feel because it's you can feel that collective loneliness and fear that is everybody sort of pushing out of their head. I've always been like even since I was a kid I've loved solitude but when it's inflicted upon you it's a whole other it's solitude but it's not so you're incredibly alone but at the same time you sleep with somebody everybody eats together 
everybody uses communal bathrooms. You're not really allowed to be alone. So you're, you know, it's the most alone that I've ever felt in my life, but I didn't spend a minute alone. I had been back out for two months when I finally got to like hang out by myself. So my current situation is I am uh, about three months out of prison now. When you're released, you, most people are sent to a halfway house. What I saw at the halfway house is these people really finally having to face the reality that their loved ones had maybe moved on. When you're inside and you can speak theoretically about how, oh, you know, my girlfriend is maybe seeing other people, but she still is in contact with me. That's one thing. When you get out and she won't come see you because she's going to go out with somebody that night, that kind of loneliness hits a lot harder. I had a guy who lived across from me. All he talked about was other prison stuff. If somebody came in from a prison in Colorado, Brett knew somebody at that prison in Colorado, and he would talk to the guy and ask him about that person, and then they'd talk about the staff at whatever prison they'd been to, and that's his whole world. So then he gets out, and all of a sudden he's back out on the world where nobody knows about the prison in Colorado or the, what the counselor was like or how this guy's doing. And he and that's, that's another kind of loneliness where there's no level on which you can relate to anyone. Um, at the first place I was at, the visitation was inmates on one side of a table, families on the other side of a table, no contact. You could sit and talk. My family and I did the best we could to just catch up. Mom would tell me about movies or my dad would talk to me about sports or whatever. And we'd try to have it be, you know, as normal as it can be. But <clears throat> it's hard. You're sitting in a room... There's one guard at a little booth watching everybody. There's another one kind of wandering around, and you can't, like, I couldn't touch my mom's hand, you know? No hug. Goodbye. No hu uh, hug goodbye. Yeah. yeah. Hug, hug hello and hug goodbye. Uh, for me, I was always pretty happy after visitation. Um, people with kids, it just tore them up. Each time I see them, it, bring, it hit, you know, hammers home what I did, what they're going through now and how much longer it's gonna be until I get to see him again. One thing that I found was that interacting with some of the staff members was a little bit more rewarding because their interests align more with mine. Like, I don't really like cars that much. I, I'm not a huge football fan. I don't gamble. Um, and like, I mean, I like naked women as much as the next guy, but I can only see so many magazines before it's kind of boring. And so I ended up talking to the staff, and that's where I got sort of crossways, because if you talk with staff, then people always assume that you're giving them information. So for me, the, for me, the experience was just really, for a while it was stifling, and then, you know, I think anybody, whatever you do, you sort of figure out a way to do what you love to whatever extent you can while you're in there. You know, for me, it was reading, writing, and trying to make stuff. <clears throat> and for a while, I didn't, for probably the first year I didn't and then I started to sort of pick away at it and figure out what I could do to get back to the things that I loved but it loses a lot of its excitement because you know it can only go so far if I wrote a musical piece I can't play it for my parents in the visiting room because I can't bring a piano to the visiting room so that stuff that you share with people you can't really share with anybody the guy sleeping below me doesn't give a shit what I did with my day. He just wants to go to sleep so we can get to the next day and go to sleep so we can get to the next day. <clears throat> so the, the level of, you know, everybody, like I said, we're all involved in each other's lives in there because you can't not be. You know, I'm sharing 10 feet of space with another human being. I'm gonna know what he's up to more often than not and what kind of mood he's in and how he's doing, but you're not really involved. It's not my business. And so there's that weird sort of disconnect so it's not like Kiss of the Spider Woman. It's <laughs> that's leaving, what leaving aside the sexual part. Leaving aside, <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant. I mean, they, I meant the part before that. Yeah, there are friendships forming, but I think by and large they're forming out of necessity. You're not talking to each other about your lives. I mean, I lived with the same guy for 
a year and a half, when he left, I didn't really know any more about him than I did the first day I got there. And it wasn't because we didn't get along. It just wasn't germane to what was happening day to day. Day to day, it was like, are you going to eat at the chow hall tonight? Are you going to make something here? Oh, I'm going to make something here. Well, do you want to, I have some chips. If you have some whatever, beans and cheese, maybe we can make nachos. And then that was it. At the end of the night, you go, all right, good night. I'll see you tomorrow. Does it make you look differently at the way you pass your time in friendships and, and relationships on the outside? Yeah, it absolutely does. Or it has led to me wanting to get a little more out of my friendships and not have so much of those sort of surface, you know, oh, how's your, how's, how's your daughter? Whatever, I don't actually care. If I ask somebody, how's your daughter, then it's because I want to know, how's your daughter? this sort of tension that's always there that doesn't exist anywhere else, at least in my experience, anywhere else in the world. Really intense emotional and psychological isolation coupled with, you know, extreme... Uh, population density? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Extreme population density. So three days in, my attorney, one of the things she said is... You know, oh, I spoke to your girlfriend. She wants you to know that she, you're not to contact her ever again. And she got rid of all your stuff. And th and that night was just like, I didn't yet have money to use the phone or send an email. I could write a letter, but if I send it, it's going to get to my folks in, you know, however many days. So, and I don't hadn't made any friends or hadn't really talked to anybody because I came in looking in pretty bad shape. That night, I remember just, like, sobbing. And I'm not a big crier. Like, I, it had probably been a year or two since I had cried. Just sobbing myself to sleep until I was absolutely exhausted. Um, and then the night before I was released, or released to the halfway house, just walking around and, and thinking about all these other guys who still have three years, four years, five years. They're on appeal, they don't know when they're gonna be out. And me thinking, like, living here with you dudes is over. And that was really, I just felt so profoundly and completely detached from whatever the last few years of prison had been. And that was a really strange and sleepless sort of loneliness of like, couldn't call my girlfriend and say, oh, I'm sad to be coming home because obviously I wasn't sad to be coming home. And I started to think like, Okay, well, I don't know. I, you know. I don't have a job. I haven't seen my girlfriend in a couple years. I, I don't know to what degree my family is going to be able to help me out, or if that's even something I should ask. So that, yeah, it, it's it's a weird sort of indescribable loneliness of like, all right, I got to sort this out all on my own. And I think people, I didn't so much, but I think people get really locked into if there's one redeeming thing about prison, it's that you always know. Okay, tomorrow I gotta be up at six. I can go to breakfast. I can go work out. I gotta be back by nine for count. By 10.30, I'm gonna be back out. They'll serve us lunch. I can do whatever. I gotta be back by four for count. You're and temporarily relieved of any existential crisis. Exactly. Yeah. And then you, you know, you get released and it's like, what are you gonna do today? Oh, I, what time do they count us here? And that's, you see a lot of people who when that routine is disrupted, they just lose their shit. You know, if you're, if we're locked down for a couple days because there was a fight or whatever in another unit, and the guy doesn't get to go to, he doesn't get to go out to the track and walk at seven o'clock in the morning, he's pissed off. He's agitated. He's pacing back and forth in the unit. You know, phones go down for some reason. The computers go down. Mail, written mail, is your only right in terms of communication as an inmate. You want me to stop this? Yeah, for a second. My friend's name is Everett Chance. That beeping that you heard was him suddenly remembering that he needed to call his parole officer. And uh, after that, it was time to go. And with that, it's time to leave this episode. The girls are at school. It's not a Rome school day. They're in regular public school with their leading regular lives in Portland, Oregon. It's an unusual sunny afternoon, and I'm by myself thinking about how lucky I am that I will get to choose to return to my pack 
at about 2.55 when I pick up the girls from school. I'm also very thankful to you out there in listener land, the bigger pack. Let us know what you think of the show. Get involved. Write me at jim at romeschooled.com. More information is available at our website. There are a lot of images and other information at the website as well. We look forward to you hearing the next episode, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I want to thank all the people who gave their time to sit down and talk with me, my daughters, and co-producers to make this episode, including Matt Sheehy, Robin Jill, Linda, Buddy Crop, Cindy Lee, Everett Chance, Linda Blue, Joel Eisenhower, and most importantly, my daughters Dana and Vern, who inspired the questions, topics, and came along for the ride. Romeschooled is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with invaluable production assistance, concept, and website development by Lydia Ritchie. Ben Landsverk and I recorded and wrote the music, except for the musical piece that you heard at the beginning of the episode, Wolf Eyes by Paul Winter. We'd like to welcome Ryan White to our team here at Romeschooled. He'll be heading up the newly created Department of Encouragement and Development. You've been listening to Romeschooled. Thanks. Thanks.